Okay. Glad we're still perky. Yes? How many people are feeling perky? Good. So, we're very excited to be here in Pain Week. And, well, this topic is a popular one today. Growing with aging. Um, so we're going to start by saying that we have no disclosures and the learning objectives will be looking at pain and anxiety and the relationship of pain and anxiety to people with Alzheimer's and dementias. And we want to help you understand how you can enhance mood and quality of life because that's so distinctly associated with people experiencing dementia and Alzheimer's. And we'll talk about some of the music mechanisms um, that you may not be familiar with. And we'll lock in some strategies for you of how we work with this difficult population, this growing population, um, but perhaps most importantly, this population that has such a unique access to the mechanisms of music and music therapy because our brains are actually wired to program music, which is why people who had dementia and Alzheimer's, and we'll talk about stroke a little bit too. Um, the music itself can help people speak. And when you couple that with the affiliated emotions of a favorite song, um, you have a new experience in a new context. So first, a bit of background. Here we are, 25 years old, our center. And some of us are here today. We call ourselves the senior staff. <laughs> but the rest of us we bring along. We actually have maybe the largest center for music and medicine in the world. And it's created after the legacy of Louis who was the father of jazz and an ambassador to improvisation. And that fits with our understanding and use of music therapy. We don't just plug in to a song that makes people happy. We actually unplug that song and make it live and then improvise in the context of people's lives. And that's the discipline of music therapy. Uh, music's great, but actually using music therapeutically takes licensing and accreditation. And while well, we have two doctoral candidates here, we've been doing this a long time. So up on the screen, you'll see our team. We have music therapists in neonatal intensive care. We have music therapists and respiratory illnesses such as asthma, COPD, um, and many other areas. 
We also have a large training program. We have 12 interns and we have fellows and child life folks and we do a lot of research. So we only put this up to tell you if you have an idea about where people can train or what music therapy is, just look us up. Let's continue. Music and music therapy in the healthcare. How does it work? Why does it work? Well, we know from our research and largely from journals, we're showing that yes, music itself has access to neural pathways, but live music is actually the plasticity, the agent of change. The agent of live music therapy can bring about changes in the way people live from day to day. That's because live music provides experiences of entrainment. Entrainment is when a person follows the beat or the movement or the music of another person. It's a scientific term rather than the person listening or playing music having to follow something fixed. It's a subtle difference, but it's critical in how we work because we can adapt to the heart rate, the respiratory rate. We can change from Bach to the Rolling Stones like that. We can turn the Rolling Stones into a lullaby if someone's tired. We can move into call and answer in the key of the person with Alzheimer who's singing, right? So the mechanisms of music therapy are really what we're going for. The International Association of Music and Medicine it's called I Am, and it's actually a growing association of doctors, nurses, neurologists, music therapists. We have musicians, we have people who do research, and we're sort of growing this idea that the body is actually a symphony of sounds. and that our physiology is connected to our thinking, and that the brain controls the body, and the body controls the brain. It's quite interesting, so I'll put that up there. We also do provide music therapy for musicians, and some of the neurologic research, if you look up neurologic music therapy, or musicians, brain research. You'll see a lot of neurology research is studying the brain of musicians because it's, it turns out that people who have music training from a young age or have genetic disposition to music or both have a different kind of wiring in their brain than your average person. So we treat musicians, and we treat adults with 
they're allowed to dysfunction. And we're in the New York City public schools. We have a clinic on Union Square. We also assist people through cancer, from diagnosis through end of life. So we're studying things like resilience in chemotherapy, when people have to get those chemicals in their body and they have chemo brain. How can rhythm and groove and favorite music keep the resilience capacity going? So we also have a choir for people with stroke. And stroke is a perfect neurologic condition for study, maybe better than Alzheimer's or dementia. So we're going to study a little bit of stroke today and talk about that. We have a stroke choir with people who have survived stroke, and they come with their partners. And it's like our Monday night cocktail hour. It's from 5 to 6. It's free. And we are learning a lot. It's a research study. We're looking at aphasia. We're looking at saliva samples, mood, hormones. So how many people here are newbies to music therapy? Raise your hand. Wow, OK. We're about a third virgins here. So that's good that we made this slide. This is kind of how music therapy happens in any setting. But in the medical setting, we have that middle part. First comes a referral. Second comes the music therapy assessment, where we assess people's likes of music, their use of music. And we assess what it's like to play music and what happens in the music play, which is in the moment. And the timing of being in the moment it's a critical part of our assessment, because we can actually experience things like pain, things like delayed speech, things like stutters, things like tremors, things like silence, things like depression, things like anger. We can feel it all at the same time. Then we devise a clinical plan of care. And the pain evaluation, part of our expertise, people on our team, John Mondanero, myself, and the others, we've hosted conferences on music therapy and pain. We have books on music therapy and pain. Um, and especially with the pain experience, but also with the performance of speaking the performance of movement and being in the world, the coordination of singing. We think of the body as an instrument. I found this diagram on the internet, and I thought it was kind of cool how, how instruments have been made to actually be shaped like bodies. Okay, let's move into our topic. When we think about dementia and we study Alzheimer's, we think about how can we harvest this discipline of aging. And we see that it fits beautifully in 
the science, the art, and that actual clinical practice of music and medicine. Um, changes in the brain are aligned with changes that happen that make people feel anxiety and agitation. So what we try to do is symptom management, but also managing those symptoms and malfunctions in a relationship. Um, few studies in early dementia literature um, really looked at how to fix dementia, but more now growing to understand how to prevent it. If you look at the, some of the commercials, for instance, on TV, you're starting to see more and more something you should take now to help you prevent. And music therapy is really good for that. We fit under the criteria of wellness. And we know that rhythmicity, not just if you can play a rhythm or sing in tune or dance, we know that rhythm helps prompting. Rhythm helps prompting. It's a natural feeling. But we also know from some of the research that sleep cycles are so very important. There was a recent study that I read about Twitter. Sorry, I'm not, I just read it. Um, they studied Twitter shoots in everywhere on the globe and they had billions of people and they looked and analyzed their tweets. And the researchers said, not including Trump, which I thought was funny. But anyway, what they found, maybe we all know this, but I thought it was interesting that they really found evidence that the most positive, a word, a word I hate, positive, but the, the tweets with the most um, affirming, meaningful, action-oriented topics came in the morning and then went downhill till about 6.30, right? So that says you should love your work. But it also says the importance of timing and sleep is something that's under-researched in terms of neurologic implication. So let's keep going. We look at music interventions and we've looked at how they actually can improve brain health. We've done things like drumming circles with residents who had to stay on 12-hour shifts in midday and seeing improved acuity. We've seen in trauma where loss or impairment of function is interrupted. That listening together and the immediacy of music can enhance acuity and function. So, the, basically, if you look at categorizing music medicine, we're looking at studies that look at music and cognition, studies that look at music to reduce pain, and it might not be actual pain that people who are aging are having, but it's expressed as pain because they're hopeless and they want attention. And we look at music and language capacity because language is music, 
right? It's also tone. So another great area to look at in this work is caregiver burden. We're not just treating a patient, but we have to find ways to access their partners. Because where there's tired, worn down partners, there's patient decrease and vice versa. So we know that the brain is programmed to have music pathways. There's research on spatial processing, rhythm. We know that the frontal lobe has motorex, perceptual integration, attention, working memory. We are programmed neurologically are to have neural pathways that have music. And we see it in stroke patients who stop speaking or stop moving, and they come in wheelchairs inside to our choir, and all of a sudden, we play a favorite Beatles song, and their lips start moving, and they start singing, and then we see their partner start singing, and then we see tears, and it's partly tears of loss and grief, but the other part of the tears are those moments of joy that they share together, where for the first time, they feel part of a community. And we've also had people with Alzheimer's and dementia come in to our stroke choir, too. So there's something about the neurologic brain be, being programmed to music. And we saw with Helen Keller and, and Caruso experiences of music pathway. And if you saw the King's Speech, how many people saw the King's Speech? Great film about stuttering and language recovery. The very first, I'm just going to spoil one scene. The very first time we see the King get super turned on emotionally is when he walks into his speech therapist's office. And there's a table there with these little toy soldiers. And he sits down, and he's waiting for his speech therapist. And you see this moment where his creativity and his memory of these little soldiers are elicited. So it's not just the music pathway and all that technical brain information. It's the memory and the emotion that goes with the pathway. So we are doing lots of research. I say we, the collective we, of music therapists and neurologists in stroke patients. And this is just one study. And what it showed was that when people who suffered stroke heard a book with music, they remembered it better. We saw recovery of verbal memory and attention more efficient in the readings that were accompanied by music. So I'm going to push ahead. You can look at these studies which compare the fixed music, the audio, to the live. And you see in many of these tests, the music 
involved in recovery helps people with their cognition. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about the value of therapeutic singing because we've been studying this. First of all, the best models, even if you're not a music therapist, we recommend including favorite songs. Familiar melodies can orient people to a time and place in a context. And we recommend it doing it in the moment with someone else so that there is a shared experience. Anyone can plug in and have a intra experience. But when we pull out the plug and put the music in the air, we're experiencing it at the same time. We recommend frequent rehearsals or frequent times, maybe at the same time of day, maybe at sundowning or perhaps in the morning to get going in the daily activities. If the person you are singing and listening to with is musical, harmony is a gorgeous way to have integration because in harmony, the singer has to keep their own melody. So to feel that accentuation in the music is gorgeous, especially for someone who has loss of cognitive capacity. Then singing also works because you're breathing at the same time when you come into a phrase together here, and you're both on that downbeat. And for people who have had dementia in particular, there's so many times when family members sit around and talk, and it's like a dad, you know, he doesn't understand anyway, and you just sort of move on. I've seen that experience live time and again. So when you're singing, again, you're doing it at the same time, the same cue, and you're with. You have collaborative, regulated dynamics, right? Yes. So the benefits of singing is something that's growing in the literature. The cue timing, retrieving memories. If I were to play Joy to the World here now, we'd have a great chorus, and we'd have a shared experience of many memories. Then the movement, the breath, and the harmony are critical aspects in music that can be used in music therapy, that can enhance focus, that can build trust of the in-the-moment dynamic process. Then there can be stringency in the rehearsal time together. Now, it doesn't have to be a formal rehearsal. It can be sing around the piano together. But everybody sort of has the same part, and it's empowering. So let me show you what this looks like with our stroke choir. Singing about Monday. Call and answer.
called an answer. Famous people sit in, which is something that famous people love to do. He's on Colbert. How many people know John Batiste? He's on Colbert every night. But he came and sat in our Christmas concert. We also do quiet music meditation which can be very useful for people experiencing anxiety. And there's lots of anxious behavior we see in people with neurologic deficits. You'll see one more famous person coming up who's sitting in. Take a look. That's another way to actually build community, which may be one of the most important messages in creating community in music therapy, which is a large part of the work we do. I'm going to share another project we did. We're in New York City, so we worked with Lincoln Center. You know, it's one thing to get people out to Carnegie Hall. But there's people 
older people with dementia sitting in their apartments by themselves. And it's difficult sometimes to get out of the house to hear beautiful music. So we partnered with Lincoln Center to have some of the performers provide concert experience. And then we took them as music therapists and also some visiting artists help largely with some visuals, kinesthetic arts. And we processed some of what they listened to in the concert. So here's the theme of Mendelssohn. And I'm just going to give you a tiny little snippet of the after processing. And I sort of scooped it out from this study because it was such a gorgeous moment where one of the men who is usually very much to himself or to his wife just came out in the music in a moment of joy and everything wrong neurologically goes away and he's taken into another moment all with the threadline theme from the concert he heard just before this processing group. Oops, sorry. So we took the theme from the concert we heard before and added verbal lyrics to it and made it come alive. And that is a lot of the music therapy process. Last, I'm going to share with you the study that's ongoing for us now. We're actually looking at patients at our hospital with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease. And we're doing a combination of live music therapy and home listening, which seems nice for carryover. It doesn't just happen in the music therapy room. And it's not all exclusive listening at home, but there's a combination of. And they have journals at home that actually have reference to their experience in their lives. So the music is actually being injected into the now experience. And they're keeping diaries and listening together. And part of that elements of this study is that we're using songs that are most important to them. We call them songs of kin. We've researched it before in neonates. We see in the literature the importance of repetition, of familiarity. That's the mechanics of the brain. But what music psychotherapists do is connect those moments to the historic emotional meaning and the present of what can grow with those threads of familiarity. Um, so we have this map journal guide that comes home with them. Then they come back and have music therapy with us twice a week. That's the Music Plus group. The Music Alone group is the music assessment 
and then they listen at home every day for an hour for six months and record their experience. And then there's the control, and it will be blinded because the assessment will ask for pleasant music experiences. So it will be double blinded. So my closing part before I introduce John Mondanero will be to say that what we're learning about music therapy in dementia is that the music itself and the relationship engages areas of the brain involved with paying attention, involved with making predictions, updating the event in the memory. It's not just, oh, nice, Henry's singing. Big deal, Henry's singing. Unplug Henry. Having come into the relationship. Then we see peak brain activity occurring in the moment in a short period of silence in between the musical movements and experiences. And that's when the digestion and the rekindling is taking place. All right, I'm going to introduce John Mondanero. Thank you, Joanne. Can, is my mic on? It's okay? Great. Um, so presenting another aspect of the work that we're doing across these populations, I wanted to focus on caregivers. And if you know the literature, you'll find a variety of terms, caregivers, carers, partners. And I think some of this represents a bit of ambivalence about the role and dignifying the role. And, and we include that effort in all of our studies because we know that while it's certainly a hot topic in healthcare right now, um, the ambivalence around it still um, is worth bringing into educational forums like this. And so in preparing for this, I actually, uh, um, going through some of the more recent literature, I, I pulled up a book. I was reminded of a book that I read back in 2004 when my own father was uh, coming to the end of his life, and I had the luxury of being able to spend time with my seven siblings taking turns. Uh, but it, it was a chaotic time, and uh, I picked this book up by Carol Levine and Tom Murphy, Murray, um, Caregiver, A Culture of Caregiving. And it's so relevant, 15 years later, it's almost as if they were forecasting where we would be today in 2019 with looking at caregiver burden. And I, so some of these points from that book are resonant in the literature today. And I wanted to uh, just share that with you because I think it says a lot about uh, the healthcare paradigm, that things are slow to change. And while you know, 25, 30 years ago, we were talking about moving toward a wellness modeler, it was on the horizon. And certainly that more people would be living longer um, and, and living in their homes. We've now moved into the last 10 years of hospital units shrinking, fewer beds. Uh, more rapid dis, uh, discharges to home. And while that's a good thing on many levels because people we know do better in their homes and are less prone to hospital-borne infections, you know, there, there's a list goes on of why there are positives to that. There are also um, stressors that are embedded in the, in the, the whole um, uh, zeitgeist of caregiving right now. Um, some of these things, I think, are, are, were foreshadowed whether we knew that back then or not, but um, certainly generational definitions of lifestyle. You know, uh, when you know, the, the role of the caregiver um, when there was a shorter lifespan was certainly uh, more manageable, also when more people were living at home. 
um, or more women, I should say, were living at home before um, uh, you know, the, the 60s and 70s and, and now into where we are, where people are encouraged to self-actualize and live full lives with careers, that the idea of staying home or um, compromising one's career to care for an aged parent or a child is it's a different story today. And it contributes to this notion of what is burdensome. And it's not that there's a lack of love or desire to care for our loved ones, it's that the times are different. And while people can live um, uh, infinitely longer lifespans, um, it, it just poses that much of a greater challenge. Um, so the, again, the shifting social norms, people working more, people living longer. Um, the burden um, at one time was very much um, uh, ascribed to the women of the family, that it was the woman who would give up her job. That's changing, and that's a good thing. So that you'll see in some of the more recent literature that, that uh, men, the, the, the balance between men and women caregivers is, is pretty much evening out. Um, but caring for loved ones at the home, there's certainly a burden of responsibilities that, that very little training is offered. Um, so again, you know, in 2003, when my own father was dying, and then a year later, my mother died, and in both situations, I uh, performed tasks that I would never have thought I would be doing for my parents. And I, of course, they were motivated by love to support them in their homes. Um, the, the, the scenarios I found myself in were far from what I had ever trained to do, even working in healthcare. And I've been doing, uh, working in healthcare for over 20 years now, and the caregiver role has always been salient in my work, from working in the Pedi Pediatric Neuroscience Institute for seven years when I first started, and, and working with parents of children with brain tumors, uh, intractable epilepsy, uh, clear through now working with adults um, suffering from a, a range of diagnoses. And it's the role of the caregiver that has always um, kind of tugged at my heartstrings. Uh, because um, in many ways they are uh, eyes without a face, part of the inspiration for this title. Um, certainly Alzheimer's was part of the inspiration for that as well, but looking at that title, finding um, the identity of who these people were that were suddenly you know, being cast in the role of caregiver uh, warranted um, some interrogation, at least for the sake of this presentation. Um, some of the theories that, that motivate me in my work and, I, and my colleagues as well, we all draw from you know, a variety of social-oriented theories and biomedical theories because we're a medical music psychotherapy program. Uh, system justification theory is something that you know, gives us a little insight. It doesn't tell the whole story, but a combination of these theories gives us entry points and understanding some of the, the, the mentality or, or the, the, the state of one's being. Um, when they are put in the role of a caregiver. Um, belief in a just world, why is this happening to my loved one? Why do I have to, you know, why is this occurring when we did all the right moves, why we did all the right um, actions, eating right, exercising? Um, so th this, you know, understanding that that might be a perspective of, of a caregiver gives us a little more insight. Uh, Self-affirmation theory, you know, defense against medical threat, you know, that affirming identity um, can be one of the more powerful interventions for caregivers, you know, people that we're working with to see them, to
to bear witness then to uh, what we call essential therapeutic witness, to really see someone for all that they're doing. And, and what they bring to the care team as a caregiver is, um, often goes unnoticed. And there's a, there's a multitude of dynamics that surround that uh, in terms of the family system. Uh, skipping down to the bottom there, the family system, you know, the role, the illness doesn't just happen to the patient, but it happens to the whole family and, and how um, extended families and friends may even be impacted by um, illness, in this case, Alzheimer's. So some of the cases I'm going to talk about in just a moment move into that in terms of the caregiver's identity versus the patient's identity. And if we think about treatment and best practice, individuals living you know, with Alzheimer's, it really becomes a team approach, including the caregiver at home in, uh, as experts in the patients and the family system experiencing Alzheimer's, and then looking at the medical system, combining these two systems, that the medical providers have an expertise in understanding dementia uh, and the effects of dementia across cohorts. So they understand the disease uh, and bring that to the dialogue with the people who understand the patient the most. So the, the overall care that's designed and planned for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia um, is informed from multiple entry points. Social identity theory, in-group in versus out-group, really has its, its biggest play in, the, in terms of the dominant culture. If that's the medical culture, then that can have a variety of impact on uh, how family members uh, are negotiating and, and navigating the day-to-day -day, uh, treatment planning that's done for their loved one. We can look at the power distance index. Um, Hofstede, Hofstede and, and uh, Minkov uh, have studied this extensively in looking at various cultural groups from around the world and what is, power, what is the relationship of authority depending on culture. And we can look at this, uh, this work also not to tell the whole story, but to understand a little bit more about why um, certain caregivers may be responding, um, may be uh, creating uh, uh, an impact on the care team planning simply by um, adhering to what is culturally normal for them. Um, we, we you know, look at conscious assessment of these behaviors as appraisal, and the unconscious assessment of these behaviors is often referred to as a counter-transference. But how those both inter appraisal and counter-transference come up into defining the, the, the portrait of a family and how they're responding to the stressors of, of illness for their loved one, um, it's part of the work that we have to do in order to, to really create best practice um, so again, we talk about looking at assessment, compassion, fatigue, caregiver distress. These are terms that are interchangeably used, um, and they impact not just the caregivers, the, the home caregivers, but professional caregivers too. Um, and it, again, it, part of the stress around um, Alzheimer's in particular, patients living at home, is the impact on routine, the impact on making decisions that are in the best interest of the, the human being, the person living with Alzheimer's, not the patient, not the diagnosis, but the human being, and all the family uh, relationships around that person, supporting that person uh, you know, and, and the family 
with sharing information, but also making a plan that, that is livable and manageable. So, you know, somewhere in this range between um, medical paternalism and consumer sovereignty, there's, there's, there are many gradations of what that negotiation can look like. And really the, the best care comes from good communication and acknowledgement that anyone, every, anyone in, that, in that satellite of care has a, a point of expertise that should be heard and listened to. Um, four areas that, you know, again, people that are involved in, in, the, in the arena of care, there's expertise across these. I just hit that, so I'm not going to spend any more time on this. Um, and then certainly the literature that's emerging uh, over, really over the past 15, 20 years is looking at natural resources, resources that we all participate in to a degree to live or to participate in the world fully. The, the idea of nature and the beauty of nature, that these are um, aspects of, of, daily, of living and participating in the world that, that can be maintained, especially for someone you know, uh, living with Alzheimer's, that these uh, points of connection, social connection, aesthetic stimulation, creative stimulation, social interaction, create opportunities to um, keep uh, life vital. Health, uh, fitness, cultural events, music therapy, of course, and recreational music listening. These are all emerging in the literature. A couple of cases I want to talk through. Um, Harold, 84-year-old uh, white male, he was actually a participant in our Lincoln Center Moments and was referred to our music and health clinic. Uh, he was a dynamic uh, man with um, quite a rich history uh, and quite a knack for disguising the degree of, of his dementia. He would often greet me when he came into the clinic and say, hey, my man, my man. Um, and, and kind of a, like a hip um, uh, greeting, and I would mirror it right back to him and say, Harold, great to see you. Come on in. Let's make some music. And he'd come in, and, and you know, his, his history was worth noting because he was a pianist and had a sideline of playing hobby piano, and he was quite proficient. But how that emerged in the session was that he had lost track. He, he, he lost the connection to his piano playing, and so his piano would often be what the equivalent of word salad, it would be note salad, um, and it was only watching the music and knowing the songs that he was playing that, that you know, it became very clear that he was not playing what was on the page, but just a gibberish of, of jazz chords, and, um, but still dignifying that by participating and supporting him with percussion while he played piano. Um, uh, he was, you know, rich family life, a wife, two sons, um, daughter of one of his sons was a professional musician, uh, classical pianist, and, and the, the son was a professional jazz player. Uh, Harold, being an ad man, was, worked on jingles and also copy. Um, and when Harold would talk about his family, when we would bring up certain aspects of his family, his, his face would light up on, with certain uh, children, the grandchildren, but it would also... He would grimace at times uh, in talking about the lives of his, of his children and, and his wife in particular, and you know, the, the dissonance that these relationships caused uh, was unclear, but we worked with whatever Harold brought into the session, which is part of a music psychotherapy process. 
to just simply bear witness and, 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 and feel where it was going to go. Harold's wife um, brought him here to the clinic. She wanted him to have this in his life, but she also utilized the time to resume her own routines, to have her own life, so to speak, which is common uh, in, in, in many caregivers, to seek out opportunities for their loved one to be stimulated uh, while they uh, you know, participate in the world according to their own terms. And we're, part of the study that Joanne had mentioned is that we're looking at this to engage the caregivers as, uh, through a journal and through activity. And I think we're going to find um, we may have some surprises there as to what can occur. Is this a positive thing to enlist someone uh, to engage more time uh, or not? We'll learn this, obviously, in the study. Um, but Anne, uh, the, the wife had signs of distress for getting phone appointments we had made, uh, not being able to take the call when I would call, um, and very short conversations, and eventual discontinuation of the sessions uh, because Harold was having challenges at home, was having outbursts and not... Um, you know, slamming the piano lid down, frustrations building from his own uh, growing deficits. Um, his presentations, despondence and aggression, um, the hostility toward his wife and symbolism of social standing life would come through in his recounting of specific ritualistic events, uh, uh, hallmark events for the family, a wedding, uh, baptism. Um, these seemed to cause Harold more stress than actual pleasure. Uh, and we would move into these dialogues, and the sessions began to to be shorter and shorter. His his from the beginning stage, uh, beginning of the session when he would be positive and 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 wanting to come in to you know within 15 minutes toward the end of our time together, uh, becoming disgruntled and, and insisting that he was done and he was tired. Um, and we would walk out, and the next week he would come back again, smiling and happy to be there. So we continued this. The sessions moved from 15 minutes to 30 minutes, and then finally to 15 minutes before uh, his wife and I discussed that the, the return on the investment of bringing him down um, was um, contraindicated for her to continue. But there were some breakthrough moments, and I think those are really special. One was he completely lit up in one of our final sessions in singing a Louis Armstrong uh, imitation, Hello Dolly, and he sang in the gravel of Louis Armstrong as he was looking at some of the artwork on the wall, and um, I supported him on guitar, and he sang the whole song, and, and, and we laughed together, and this was something about him that, uh, that tapped into the very strength of who he was, that he was still intact inside in many ways. Um, sessions ended, and I have not heard, I don't know uh, what happened. That was over a year ago, but, but I think the course of music therapy um, was rich and was what it was, what it needed to be for him at the time. Uh, Jerome, another case, 87-year-old African-American man, retired from a career in IT. He was an aficionado of the New York City jazz scene. And we often, often love to talk about uh, a, a jazz club called Tiny's, where Thelonious Monk played, his favorite musician. And so we use Thelonious Monk music in our sessions, and, and he will play the cymbal and sing. Um, his daughter, uh, Connie, single. He has no grandchildren, but she has come to sessions, a little bit different story than Harold. Connie is engaged in bringing him to sessions, 
Um, and he has a home health aide, uh, Selma, who brings him. And while Selma sits outside the room, she's right there to help him move in and out. Uh, Jerome dresses up. He comes with a nice white fedora and a, a slick shirt on. He gets dressed up every Friday for our session. It's his outing, and it's like his excursion to Tiny's. And we have a jazz scene for about an hour. Um, and he never cuts it short. He's always surprised when we have to end. Um, but he, yeah, it's a weekly session. Um, uh, and again, the investment of Connie, his daughter, to make sure he has this outside uh, event to uh, come. She's accompanied him to our stroke choir um, as well. And um, just some engagement, a different level of engagement, um, not judging uh, against the other case at all, but there's just something we have to look at with individualized care is that every caregiving situation is unique to that family system. And we have to bear witness to that and support. Um, a breakthrough moment for Jerome in his weekly sessions is singing from the American Songbook. And he will sing the lyrics to songs that um, Ain't She Sweet, Cab Driver, Summertime, um, and uh, he'll sing the, uh, the melody of A Night in Tunisia, one of his favorite Thelonious Monk songs. Um, and so we support him. He plays the ride cymbal. We support him on guitar and piano, uh, percussion. He, he enjoys being immersed in the music scene that he once attended on a regular basis. So it, uh, bringing this to um, his world is, is what that's about. I'm going to move to Andrew now because Andrew's really um, going to talk to you about dementia and the use of songwriting and recorded song and the importance of individualized song lists. Very nice. Thank you, John. Okay. So as uh, John mentioned, uh, we've looked at some of the theories behind uh, our approach, and uh, we've seen some informative case studies. I'd like to talk to you a little bit um, on a uh, mechanistic perspective. Uh, and I thought it'd be good to start off with a, a definition. No surprises here, I imagine. I'd like to ask a question. Any music therapists in the audience? Okay. How many of you use music therapeutically in your practices? How many of you would like to use music therapeutic in practice. Okay, good. So we're all on the same page. Okay, so some salient points to keep in mind uh, when you're looking at, at uh, treating pain in people with dementia. Um, first off, probably uh, one of the most important is that Alzheimer's and dementia um, changes brain matter and, and neural pathways. And that, of course, complicates treatment of pain. Um, even treatment of pain from a biopsychosocial uh, perspective. One of the other things that, uh, that's very challenging is the assessment of pain in people with dementia is, is actually quite complicated. Uh, there's quite a bit of controversy uh, regarding it. And uh, uh, the issues are whether, whether we use self-rating versus uh, observed behavior. And there are, there are advantages and disadvantages to both of those uh, approaches. Another controversy is regarding the use of analgesics and whether or not they're actually very uh, effective. So uh, as you can see from this, uh, this is a sizable problem and that, um, that like dementia itself, 
it's, it's progressive in nature. You see how the numbers ratchet up. So uh, 72% of chronic pain in people with dementia increases when they're over 85. It's also quite complex because, as I mentioned, uh, accurate assessment is, is difficult, in part because of loss of communication uh, abilities. There is uh, an increased risk of adverse cognitive events with, cognitive, uh, with commonly excuse me, prescribed medications. And pain is often the cause of underlying behavioral disturbances. Um, and that can lead to inappropriate treatment with antipsychotics. And some of the things that antipsychotics are used to treat in people with Alzheimer's and dementia are wandering nervousness, uh, uncooperativeness without aggression, avoidance of social interaction, verbal expression uh, or behavior that might possibly be a threat to self or others. And to me, it seems like we're trying to use a cannon to kill a fly. Not, very, not a very effective approach. Um, one of the ideas that might lead to a better approach is this idea of the DICE model, which maybe some of you are uh, familiar with. Uh, DICE is about describe, investigate, create, and evaluate, and that is to discover the reasons behind the behavior and address them, not just looking to, to uh, squash the behavior itself. So as I said, um, there is... Uh, some conflicting ideas about assessment. Um, Self-report in and of itself is complicated by the advance of disease. Um, and the problem with observational processes is that it can be very complex and require special training for staff. So points in a growth point is that there is a uh, tendency in research uh, towards patient-centered and uh, psychosocial interventions over medical treatment, um, how we approach treating pain um, sometimes is not directly about the, the pain response itself, but some of the things that accompany uh, and, or, and or exacerbate the pain response, like agitation uh, and anxiety or depression, which are things that commonly occur in people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, really interesting idea about how anxiety and depression are often the uh, uh, different sides of the same coin and how this idea of a depression pain dyad is a, uh, a pretty useful idea to work with because there is an overlap in underlying uh, neurological processes. There's a shared commonality in stress signals and emotional activation. So this idea of biopsychosocial pain management um, is based on Melzack, Wall, and Katz's uh, domain approach that's uh, um, cognitive, evaluative, motivational, effective, and sensory discriminative. Of these three domains in the pain response, uh, the one that I think personally works best with this population is motivational, effective, and I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go along. Uh, here's a schematic of a uh, pain management strategy. And uh, you can see as everything we do, uh, our interventions start off with an assessment. In this case, it's a pain assessment. Uh, follow it around, and you see that this is about an interdisciplinary approach. This is not about just trying to limit things to biopsychosocial. Uh, it also includes pharmacological treatment. 
Um, uh, of course, what is what follows this around is the uh, very important is the review of the response to treatment. So basically, what we're looking at is pain management through modulation of anxiety and depressive states, and through also modulating uh, affective states as well. Uh, there is studies show that there is a prevalence of comorbid depressive states and anxiety with people with dementia. With, uh, dementia. Um, studies also show that state and mood and affect influence pain response. Um, we're looking at using discrete pain experience domains. Uh, we're looking mostly at the emotional domain of the pain experience. That's not emotional pain and suffering, but uh, actually the, the emotional uh, quotient of what uh, pain response is. Um, we're also working with music's ability to modulate emotional response and experience, and using music and music in a music therapeutic, uh, music therapy context to shift mood and affect to shift the pain response in itself. So what happens when we're using music and why music is such a potent tool is that there is a, a real systems response to music. The entire organism pretty much uh, responds to listening to music or participating in music and music therapy. And what happens is that uh, there is uh, cognitive and executive functioning involved. There's emotional limbic systems that come into play. The autonomic nervous system and vagal regulation of state are very much present, along with this, this idea of uh, physical motor activation, uh, calibration of heart rate, respiratory rate, and, and other systems. So the, um, the mechanisms are reward, motivation, arousal, and pleasure systems, in the brain, activation versus activation and balance versus hypometabolic states, uh, social integration, vagal regulation of autonomic nervous system response, and felt spiritual experiences, flow in peak states, and experiences sometimes of the divine. So, looking at this idea of the importance of balance and arousal, balance pretty much means how much we are attracted to something, how much we like something. And arousal is just what it means. How activated listening to something makes us feel. An emotional response is a mixture of those two core dimensions. And I'd like to give you a tiny little experiential of what this is about. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Familiar song. Right? I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping So it has a tempo, it, it has an intensity sleeping, And the vision that was planted in my brain So you're very familiar with that version, perhaps not so much with this one. element create a very different feeling right from the very beginning right left its 
scenes while I was The register of his voice, the timbre, the quality of his voice, the tempo of the music. Sense of expectation. And I'm just going to move this Arousal, perhaps. And voices never share. And no one dare disturb the sound of silence. Fool said, I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer. different experience, isn't it? So what that brings us to is this idea of the nuts and bolts of what goes on. Um, when we participate in music, when we listen to music, when we have a music experience. And uh, this is an, uh, an article uh, that I published about this, this idea of what we're calling uh, prescribed music. And this has very much to do with not just the music that's chosen, but the way the music is played. Not the what so much as, as the how. And what we just saw in that uh, brief experiential was that the how the music is played brought up what I imagine was probably a very different response from what you might have had to the original song. Okay, was there a sense of urgency to the second music? Can I ask just one second? Can you come up with a, with a word to describe the second version of the piece just right off the top of your head? if you recall. Okay, intense. Tense is good. Disturbed. That's the name of the band, by the way. <laughs> okay, any other ideas on what an emotional... Um, sexy. sexy, all right. I thought it was part of the Dimitri experience. I never thought of it that way. Till now. Okay. That people that experience dementia have their own silent experience. Nancy Reagan called it the slow death. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the idea behind this is that um, we're we're looking at the discrete elements of music 
and how to manipulate them or how to take, if we're using pre-recorded music, how to sequence music in such a way that we're working within those two parameters of valence and arousal to meet the patient where they are, meeting their state. And then the idea is that the music is going to change and that is going to modulate their state, their affect, their emotion, even reducing anxiety or addressing depressive states. All of those things would require a different sort of change in the music or a different sequence of the music. And this idea of, of prescribed music and something that we're calling the music characterization system, that's how this came about. This is what, uh, what we're trying to do with this. So the idea of using uh, prescribed music in pain management, as Dr. Lowy mentioned, one of the most important things is that, is that for the music to be the most effective, and we are always looking at what we like to call the hierarchy of efficacy in practice. You can use music on a, on a baseline level and use some music for someone to try and modulate uh, a state. Likely, that might be better than not using it at all. But there's no guarantee that it's going to be effective. In fact, um, there is always a remote possibility that it might not only be beneficial, but it might be detrimental to the person that you're working with. As you all know, music can be used very effectively as a torture device. If you don't believe that, when you go home tonight, pick out some music that you detest, put on some headphones, put the music on 10, and make yourself listen to it for 20 minutes, and then take a look at how your state has changed, right? So this idea of Song of Kin uh, using music that uh, has strong personal meaning, music that's significant for people. Uh, the other idea is that we need also to look at if the songs have lyrics, we need to look at what the content of the lyric is. So in this process of prescribed music, what we're looking for is we're looking for a means and a method to specify uh, for a, sorry, for a specific clinical goal. And that always starts off, like with any intervention we do with assessment, a goal is identified, the patient identifies their preferred music. That is a very, very important step. The, we localize, if we're using uh, pre-recorded music, we localize the files, we download them, we download them. We analyze them with the music characterization uh, system. We're looking at the discrete elements of the music, and then we, we construct what we call a prescribed music program. Uh, so the music characterization system is a, uh, a work in progress. Uh, we came up with 12 different musical parameters that we analyze uh, and some non-musical elements as well. So the idea is that um, you would take a piece of music, analyze it, look at this list of uh, parameters, um, uh, range, intensity, tempo, harmonic complexity, apparent volume, rhythmic complexity, melodic contour, dissonance, timbre, structure, and predictability. And each one of these would, would be given a numerical value. Uh, then we would also look at, at uh, some non-musical elements, uh, the perceived emotional content of the music, general descriptors, what the metaphoric uh, content of the music might be, very, very important. Um, what sort of associations a person might be able to have with this music. And uh, 
the music is taken, it is arranged in a sequence. In this case, this would be what uh, a sequence would look like if we were trying to provoke a relaxation response um, in a patient. And you see that this always starts with um, matching, meeting the patient where they are, meeting the person where they are. And that it, that's not rocket science. If you take someone who's in a very activated state and you play a very slow, placid-sounding adagio, they are likely not going to be able to focus on it very much. But if you take a piece of music that's as activated as they are, that's something that, that entrains, we, is the word that we use for it, uh, or attunes to their state, and it is something that they can connect to easily. So the idea is that, first of all, you have to make a connection. So the music would be sequenced. We might have um, half an hour's worth of music. would be sequenced in what a relaxation curve looks like. The curve that's drawn here is uh, not completely accurate, but uh, pretty much a relaxation response is not something that's linear. We don't relax like this. Um, usually what happens is there's a gentle curve, a reverse plateau, then once again a curve downward, another plateau, and that's your relaxation response. So the music would be programmed to follow that sequence. And we are going to move into questions. We've left some time for questions because we thought there might be some. Rest them, we'll do sure. Um, would you like to? We invite you to come visit us if you're ever in New York City and you want to see the work live. We have something called observation and orientation where not just music therapists, doctors, nurses, people really interested in research come. There's a small fee and you can observe train. We have a music and health clinic. Um, musicians are a special breed, especially the music brain. Um, there's a conference coming up in 2020 in Boston. It's at the Berkeley School of Music and it's sponsored by the International Association for Music and Medicine. So if this topic excited you, there's many other topics in music and medicine. Um, to look through. There's also a journal uh, four times a year. If you join I Am, I think it's $100, and you get the journal and the newsletter and information about music and medicine. What questions might you have? Yes. Yes. Come to see us. We'll give you names for wherever you are. It's growing. Yeah. I'll yeah, say part start. one, we actually help <coughs> universities and hospitals build programs. 
Right. Uh, one thing I mentioned uh, earlier, the, the indiscriminate use of music is something that can potentially be as, as detrimental as it could possibly be helpful. So the idea of, of having a, a, a trained therapist, and we're licensed psychotherapists in, in New York State, the idea of having a, a trained therapist to do that, if there's a, an adverse response to whatever uh, music experience the person has set up, um, the person that is, that is in charge of that should be able to either redirect if that's what's, what's needed, but first and foremost to make sure that they know how to keep the patient safe. Right? So if you have someone who's coming in putting headphones on, on uh, seniors with, with Alzheimer's, um, you know, potentially there, there, there's harm that can be done. I was talking about using music as a, as a uh, uh, means of torture. If you have someone who's not very good at, at, uh, at external communication and you sort of lock them in to music, well, it, it takes a trained therapist to maybe to be able to figure out that what's going on with that person is, is something that needs to be addressed or changed. Right? Mm-hmm. Said to be available to patients, but it's really not available because by the time you put the pump up, then they'll never get there before you're discharged, that kind of thing. Yeah. There's just no funding. How am I going to continue my facility? Let's talk. We, yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that we do is, is program building. What, what state are, are you from? Um, Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, so there are music therapy programs that are university affiliated in Wisconsin, and and it's not uncommon for an intern to be placed, you know, hours away from the university to do a practicum site. So that would be one option. But I think um, you know to start out educating your 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 uh, medical teams about the possibilities of integrative care and music therapy in particular is not um, beyond. <clears throat> You're doing, there's literature, the Institute of the NIH, their Institute for uh, Alternative Medicine has, has been renamed to Integrative and Complementary Care based on 20 plus years of research showing that people don't use these therapies alternatively but integratively with Western medicine and gets better results. So, the, you know, I mean, there are sources out there to create a story, a narrative to start educating. I think that can happen simultaneously reaching out to universities about music therapy programs that are in place. Yeah? Absolutely. Great. You had a question? Yes? Are there any programs or research out there using music therapy for pain and symptom management at the end of life, like hospice Yes. Mm-hmm. There's books on it. Actually, our center has a book called Music Therapy at End of Life, and it's chapters of people who have studied and use music and trauma, use music therapy and palliative care. John's on our palliative care team. It's broadly used, started in England. Uh, Dame Sicily, yeah. I think so, yes. I think the, the key, to, again, to you know, generating a narrative in your hospitals that will lead to something, it's looking at literature that is out there and right now there's beautiful fMRI research showing that 
the part of the brain that um, is the last to atrophy at the end of life is also the part of the brain that's activated by music and autobiographical memory, which really substantiates years of anecdotal and evidence-based research of music therapy with end of life. So it's out there, and I think that when you're creating a narrative that speaks to a medical paradigm, it behooves you to look at some hard data. You know, I, I, we always think, you know, hit them here and here. You know, present the data that's out there, but then show photos and videos, and there's plenty of videos out there. We also well. do travel and do grab rounds. So going out to California in January, we go to different continents and help build. And we are available to grand round and do some of the workshopping and giving out of the research. Same time, you're welcome to travel to us. You know, we, we've been coming to Pain Week for 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this is a, a one platform where the majority of presentations, the physicians and other disciplines that speak about integrative care, you know, the thing that, that comes up, the issue that comes up is accessibility and familiarity. Those are the two hurdles. So examples like, you know, this talk here, it begins to educate and plant seeds and sparks and to generate programming that is ultimately going to save dollars and create patient outcomes that a hospital could be proud of. That's the narrative that one needs to really take on. And the transfer and continuity of care. You can take a medicine for a fixed amount of time, but music as prescribed is something that transfers to wellness and community. And I think that's a very important distinction, the continuity. Yes? I'm the uh, palliative care nurse practitioner at the okay. City Medical Center. Oh, wow. Well. Second largest trauma center in the service. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. And um, this is just amazing. It was so, so good. <laughs> um, and last week, we had an African-American guy die. And when I met, we took a long door And when I met the family, he was in a gospel singing choir. And she showed me YouTube videos of him, and it was just amazing. Wow. And so after we took him off the respirator, I told the, he had four daughters, I said, why don't we just play this music? I mean, you literally, and I play music all the time when people die, but this music, this gospel music that was sung by the guy who was dying in the bed, surrounded oh. by his family, and, and other guys in the band who sang with him after watching the video, I mean, like, I could barely walk in the room without crying. It was just yeah. like, it was so touching. I cannot even tell you. Oh, it man. was just like, it was like just perfect, you know? Yes. And as far as as a play, like, you never really know. Like, I never know what kind of music to play, you know? Like, I always play this, like, you know, angelic kind of stuff, you know? But, you know, this gospel music was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. That's fantastic. Well, you took a, a leap to deliver that intervention. And I think that speaking with nurses from around the country that I've interviewed, it's like that's generally the case where there's not a program in place. There aren't the resources for programming. You have these exemplary caregivers from other disciplines, nursing, social work, that are willing to take a leap because they know that this will improve care. And you know, I think when that, go, when that happens and it gets acknowledged or it doesn't, I guess, 
it doesn't get refuted, then it sees that as an opportunity to build. Well, you know? There you go. Yes, you do. And we're close to Jersey, yeah, and there's lots of lots of music therapists in Jersey. Lots. Great. Thank well, you all. Yeah. No more Thank questions. You. Thanks very much.